The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. I am so glad to see that Camp Mutamik is thriving and that God is using it and our church is part of it. And um, just let me take a, a moment aside here just to mention something. Uh, I was kind of glad that Wayne went a, a little longer than, than uh, normal because I had a bloody nose. <laughs> Just before I, he got up, I had, my nose is bleeding, and I'm trying to figure out how it's going to stop. And one of the reasons I think that uh, I get a bloody nose like that is I think sometimes, this morning anyway, I think the Lord is sometimes uh, saying to me, I don't want you to, to get into this performance mode too much. And it's one of the things that yesterday and the day before, our board staff and deacons had a retreat at St. Benedict's. And it's one of the things that came up there, and the staff have talked about it before, in that coming to a new building, coming to a different building, the stage is a little higher, I'm a little farther out from you, the lighting is different, and the the danger is that we somehow uh, get into performance mode, that we somehow make this a show, that that you come in, instead of being a worshiper of God, that somehow you come in expecting that it's going to be a show, you're going to be entertained, and and you're going to go home evaluating the, the worship, the preaching, the music, the whatever. And, uh, and that's just certainly not what our heart is about. It's not what we want to be about, and we discuss that. And, and every once in a while, I just am, especially Kevin and I are interested in seeing how the Lord will just throw something in that can mitigate against that so that we don't think it's about us. And so, I don't know. I think that's what I, that was what I was thinking when I had this bloody nose. I was thinking... I'm going to be going up there with a big piece of Kleenex sticking out of my mouth, or my nose, I mean. And uh, it just stopped as Wayne uh, finished up, so I'm, I think I'm okay. I want to give you a heads up. At the end of my message today, I am going to give you an opportunity to come forward right up here and to have prayer over you. And I'm telling you now because you may not think you came to be prayed over. In fact, likely you didn't. In fact, right now, as you're sitting there, you're saying, no, I'm not feeling it, Pastor Terry. I'm here and I'm enjoying it, but I'm not feeling it. But maybe in the next half hour, God the Spirit might just knock on your door, tug at your heart, and at the end of the message, when I say, anybody who wants to have prayer over them, If you feel that that's something that maybe would be good for you, would you come forward and let us pray over you during the last song? Last week I shared with you on the the fact that on December the 18th, 1865, Abraham Lincoln signed the 13th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America which essentially declared that all slaved Men and women were set free. They were no longer slaves. They were free men and women in the United States of America. And yet, on December 19th, the very next day, I shared with you that most of the slaves that had been set free the day before by the 13th Amendment went back to work just like they had the days before that. And I gave you three reasons why I think that happened. One of them is because they had not heard of the declaration that set them free from being slaves. Another is that they'd they'd heard about it, but they could not believe it was true, and so they went back to slavery the next day. 
And the third reason is because slave owners and masters of plantations gave them a distorted and twisted interpretation of the 13th Amendment that signified they should still be slaves. And I said to you last week that I think there's a lot of people in planet Earth that have a twisted view of what the grace of God Almighty is in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to earth. And there's three reasons. Number one is they have never heard about this message of grace that's come to them, sinners that could could forgive them and, and wipe the slate clean. A second is because they've heard of it, but they don't believe it's, it's true. It's too good to be true. And a third reason is because somehow they have been given a perverted, a twisted and distorted version of what the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. And so they live on in an enslavement, whether it's being enslaved by worldly passions and fleshly desires, or whether it is coming into a religious realm and being enslaved by legalism and worldly principles. The fact is that slavery of a religious kind or of a non-religious kind is still slavery, and that's not why Jesus Christ has set us free. And so, this morning as we leave Galatians chapter 3 behind and as we enter into Galatians chapter 4, we're going to see how Paul takes the theological discussion to its logical conclusion, which is really that he didn't just set us free so that we can say, oh good, now I'm not going to be punished for my sin. It's only halfway there that the logical conclusion is that so that we might actually enjoy the privileges of being children of God. We just sang about it. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. It's not that I've come into this neutral state of now God's not as angry with me as he was before. No, I've come into this household state of being part of the family of God. John Stott writes this, God sent his son so that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent his spirit so that we might enjoy the experience of it. This comes through the affectionate, confidential intimacy of our access to God in prayer in which we find ourselves assuming the attitude not of slaves but of sons and daughters and so this morning as we think about the message this morning that's my heart prayer is that God the spirit will so woo us toward him the fatherhood of God so that today we would experience his grace. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read the last few verses of Galatians chapter 3 and then go to chapter 4, verse 7. Galatians chapter 3 and going to 20, verse 25, actually, to 4, verse 7. And if you're able to stand with me, would you do that now? Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Paul has led us through 2,000 years of Old Testament history, from the time of Abraham to Moses to the time of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. If you think about it this way, we are living as long since the time of Christ as Christ was living since the time of Abraham, almost, okay? We are living as almost as long from the time of Christ as Christ was living from the time of Abraham. And so this fulfillment of the promise of Abraham in the time of Jesus was a huge fulfillment of the coming of age, of the gospel promise, of the seed of Abraham that will inherit the promise. And so the biggest event between that Abraham event and the Christ event is Moses and the giving of the law, the book of the law of Moses. And Paul lands on the law, and he really spends a lot of time there. And we might wonder, well, so if we're, if we're saved by grace and we're not under law anymore, why is it that Paul spends so much time in the law? Which is a question that I'd like to address this morning. This morning, as we think about it, we're going to look at three things. Very simple outline in your insert in your bulletin. It's why did God send the law? Why did God send his son? And why did God send his spirit? Let's take a look at those three things together. J.I. Packer who is, I think, probably one of the most influential theological writers and speakers of Canada in the 20th and 21st so far century. J.I. Packer has written this. He says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, now think about that. If you want to know if someone really gets it, really gets Christianity, you want to know if someone really gets the message of Jesus Christ, he says, find out how much they make of being God's child and having God as Father. That's it. Packer says, that's it. That's the, the centerpiece. And that's where Paul has been driving towards in all of the theological language of chapters 2 and 3 in Galatians. Let's take a look at, first of all, why did God send the law? In chapter 3, verse 19, we read last week, two weeks ago, why was the law added? And he says it was added because of transgressions. In other words, God gave us the law to reveal to us why we needed a Savior. God gave us the law to reveal to us how far we fall short of the just demands of perfection that God requires because he's a holy and perfect God. God showed us the law so that we would see that the, the enslavement of our desires and passions are actually contrary to what God designed for humans to live under. Verse 23, Paul says that the law is like a prison guard that has got us chained inside that prison wall. In verse 24, 
it says that the law is like a guardian, a, a person that's been put in charge of a young child to make sure that they get to school on time, to make sure they get back home on time, and it's, it's, the, it's this guardian. So the law is like that, and the purpose of the law, whether it's the prison guard or the prosecuting attorney or the judge of sin or the guardian of sinners, the purpose of the law is to show us our need for Christ and to take us to Christ. To take us to that place of realizing it can't be done by me, I must put my faith in someone else to do it, and that someone is Jesus Christ. And so the role of the law is, is to bring me to Christ. But for, for how long does the role of the law, is it in effect? For how long and to what end? And the law serves its purpose, of course, when someone comes to Christ and sees their need, they open their heart to faith, they realize they're not under condemnation anymore, that their guardianship of the law has served its purpose because it took them by the hand and it led them to faith in Christ. And now the guardian's no longer needed. Okay, I have the giver of the law. I have the fulfiller of the law. He's in my heart because of his spirit. I'm a child of God now. I don't need the law because I have the law written on my heart and I have the lawgiver living life with me, in me, as me. That's faith. And so the reason Paul makes so much of the law is because without the law, if it's not allowed to serve its purpose, then people will not see their true need. They will live on in this delusion that, well, I'm better than the next guy, so God must accept me. And they'll live in this idea that somehow we can be good enough for God, good enough for heaven, good enough to have forgiven sins. And we, we, we grow on in that delusion. The problem is not with the law. It's God's law, remember. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with the sinners who cannot live up to that standard. We were never expected to. We're sinners. And God gave us the law just to show us how far we fall short. And the law points out our sin. It's, you know, the law is indiscriminate. The law is unbiased. The law does not show favorites. The law just comes down like a blanket and declares everybody guilty. That's what the law does. And we run from it. Folks, we run from it. If you don't think you run from it, you haven't got enough self-awareness. You run. You run from being convicted guilty. You run from being the one who fesses up to the consequences of your own bad decisions. You run from that. And none of us has to be taught how to run from that. None of us has to be taught how to run from being accountable for our own actions and thoughts and ways of influencing other people. None of us have to be taught that. We grow up learning that. I had an experience as a young boy and looking back, I see how much God was teaching me at this stage. By the way, just for the hecklers in the crowd, that uh, I shared a story two weeks ago, and I said, somebody thought I was like a teenager. I was about 30 when I shot that rabbit, okay, just uh, for the record, because I was, uh, had some people saying that I, I might have said something like I was younger. Anyway, I was a boy when I shared this story now of about six, I think about six years of age, 
my brother was about eight years of age, and in our, okay, this is the 1960s now, folks, okay, sorry, you younger folks that, whoa. Um, and, and our dining room had these vinyl chairs, and as a six-year-old, around six years of age, I, I, was, I had a piece of paper and a pencil, and I was on my knees at a chair, and I was drawing. And all of a sudden, at one point, I noticed how it was kind of cool how there was this funny popping sound when, when the pencil went through the paper. And I thought, that's kind of a cool sound, and I kept doing that popping sound for a while, okay? And, and, and so later on in the day, my mother called my brother and I to the dining room, put us up against the wall, and showed us the chair with, with all these holes in it. And she just asked a simple question. She said, which one of you did it? Now, I knew that I had done it, but I didn't know that anybody else knew that I had done it. And for some reason, I held out. I didn't have to get taught how to hold out, how to deny responsibility, but somehow I hold out, held out. And it seemed like about an hour, but it was probably only five minutes that mom had us against the wall, pressing, lecturing, and finally, out of the blue, my brother confesses that he did it. <laughs> there was no one more surprised than I was. And the thing is, you'd think that I would have felt this incredible weight of relief off of me and, and, you know, dodged a bullet. But no, instead, you know what I felt? I felt awful for days. I felt so guilty. Why did I feel guilty? The law was doing its work, you see. The law was showing me my sin. Now, I knew that the, the Ten Commandments a little bit by then, I, I knew that whether I knew the Ten Commandments or not, I knew that you shouldn't lie to your mom. Thou shalt not lie. But even if I had not grown up in a Christian home and never had heard of the Ten Commandments, I would have known instinctively that I should not lie to my mom. Why? Because the Bible teaches us that the law is written on our hearts, that our conscience bears witness that, that it, it's right or it's wrong. Something's right or wrong. You, you know, children grow up and they have that responsibility, that conscience upon them. Every human being has that. And every child has a basic understanding, and the role of parents is to reinforce right and wrong in a consistently loving way. Because, see, that little pumpkin, that little sweetie pie, is a sinner. You know, that little, that little creature that is so cute that you just want to let him get away with all his misdemeanors. You know, they're, they're bent toward averting the law standing and landing on them. And the role is to bring them to see they can't be good enough. They need a Savior. The role of the law and the role of parenting is to bring them to see that they can't be good enough, and it's okay to not be good enough. It's okay to admit that you've made a mistake. It's okay to admit that you lied because you don't have to have fear when you have a Savior, when you have a loving Father. You don't have to fear that. You can walk into the light. You can say, I, I made a mistake. John Stott writes this again. 
We cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have first been to Moses to be condemned. So if we keep renaming sins, so if we keep recalculating what's good and bad, we never get to Moses to be condemned. We must feel condemnation before we're going to seek a Savior. So John Stott says we must we cannot come to Christ to be justified until we've first been to Moses to be condemned. But then he says, once we have gone to Moses and acknowledged our sin and our guilt and our condemnation, we must not stay there, for we must let Moses lead us to Christ. Amen? We must. That's the purpose of the law of God, is, is lead you to see your need. Of a Savior. So let's talk about that's why God sent His law. Why did God send His Son? In chapter 4, Paul goes back in verse 1 to the guardian analogy, this metaphor of a child needing a guardian to make sure that he gets to where he's going to get school and so on. And in the metaphor, it explains that a child who is an heir is no better off than a slave. When you first read verse 1, you think, well, that's not true. I'd rather be a child than a slave. But what Paul's saying is that a child who has not come of age is no better than a slave because he's under the management and the guardianship of adults that make all the decisions for them until they come of age. And that's why they're no different than a slave child in a home. Again, we're going back to first century culture here. And Paul is saying in verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children... We were enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. So now these elementary principles, what are they? In the Greek term of that phrase, it actually refers to the material, visible world that made up, made up nature. Fire, water, earth, air. But it became anything that was physically depended on. And so it became this idea of anything that we could employ or use or do that would somehow be a principle we would lean on for our own goodness, for our own salvation, for our own merit with God. And Paul, of course, has been arguing all throughout Galatians, you can't be good enough for God. You need faith in the one who was, Jesus himself. And so Paul is arguing the gospel teaches us that there's no natural means, no physical solution. And he uses the same term in verse 8, which we'll look at in another week. Now that you know that you, you have come to know God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world that you were once slaves to? So, so don't go back to the things that enslaved you. Go on in the freedom of Christ. In verse 4, he says, When the fullness of time had come, well, what was the fullness of time? That was a kairos time, the right time. When the right time came, it says, God sent His Son. Now, what was the right time? Well, the right time was Pax Romana, right? The, the right time was when the Roman Empire had pretty much dominated the then-known world, and through the Roman Empire, roads were built throughout the, ro the world. And the, the gospel, the missionaries, the apostles, they were able to travel on those roads without having a visa, getting into anywhere in Rome, because Rome was pretty much the whole world. 
And so when the fullness of time came, the fullness of time meant that it was the right time for this message of Jesus Christ, this freedom found in the grace of God to be made known. The Roman world made it possible. So did the Greek world. A few centuries before the time of Christ, great man Alexander the Great came and he Hellenized. He made a Greek influence over the entire world. Almost the whole world spoke Greek at the time. And so now we have not only the means in communication through the Roman system, but we have the means in communication through the Greek language that everybody could hear the gospel. Everybody could understand the message of Jesus. And then it says, it says that God sent forth His Son. Uh, so it's, He's a divine being. God sent forth His Son. Divine. Fully divine. Born of woman, fully human. Born under law. Jesus was a Jewish man, grew up in a Jewish home, and went to a Jewish synagogue and got a Jewish education in the law. And he lived up to the entire requirements of the law perfectly. And so the role of Jesus, it says, why did he do so? Verse, verse 4, 5 says, to redeem to redeem those under the law. Jesus was sent to redeem, to buy, to purchase sinners with his own blood. Verse 12 of chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Verse 24, Christ came that we might be justified through faith, declared free from slavery. Chapter 4, verse 5, God sent his son to redeem us. Why? So that we might receive adoption as children, as sons. And so Christ secured for us the status of sonship. And verse three, chapter 3, verse 28, in doing so, he brought us all into one family with God as Father. And in that family, there's, there's no distinction of race. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's no distinction of rank. There's no slave or free. And there's no distinction of sex or gender, male and female. We're all children of God. He's the great leveler of all humanity. We all come as needing a Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the role of Jesus, the Son of God, is Redeemer and sacrifice for sin and substitute for sinners and uh, the one who is the guarantor of our adoption. So let's get into the third part. Why did God send His Spirit? In chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he says, you are all sons. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you're no longer a slave, but you're a child of God. You're a son and an heir of God. Whereas the work of the Son of God was to guarantee the status of sonship, the work of the Holy Spirit is to guarantee the experience of sonship. And that's what I want to think about for a moment. The Holy Spirit says in this scripture, leads us to call out to God as Abba, Father. It's an Aramaic word. It, it means Daddy. Our grandson Finley calls his father Tori, Papa. That's a great word for this word, Abba. It's, it's the, the endearing word of a child to his or her father. And the, the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament did not, want, did not call God Father. 
Jesus was the one who first made this idea of calling God Father so popular and invited anyone who came to know and believe in Him to also call God Father. And so, this intimacy of a relationship and experience with God the Father. You can know that you're saved by grace through Jesus Christ and, and you've, you've done the deed, prayed the prayer, you've got Him in your heart, and you think, I know I'm a child of God. But you might not have the experience of intimacy with the Father. That's the Holy Spirit's role. Now how is it that we grow to cultivate intimacy with God the Father? I think it takes a right mind and I think it takes the right heart and experience. The board and the staff are reading a book by Steve Brown called Leading Me. And he talks in one chapter about a distorted view of God as Father. A distorted view of God. And it's interesting, we talked about it at our retreat this weekend, that the, the author views God, viewed God as king. And not the kind of king that's lovingly inviting us into his presence, but the king to be feared. No intimacy, no closeness, no, just obey. That's the kind of king. A second vision he had of God as he thought about it was a loan shark, a spiritual loan shark. Don't mess with this one. He'll, he'll get his pound of flesh. You don't want to skip a payment with God. That was his view, a spiritual loan shark. And the third vision or view of God that was distorted that he had was he grew up in an elementary school where the names were here and the gold stars were all across. Some of you might resonate with that. The gold stars. And so God was this gold star teacher. God was the kind that you could earn points with. And you were pretty, pretty sad if you didn't see, if you saw some blank spaces. And so he, had, he grew in this distorted view of God. Wasn't God the Father? How do you grow intimacy with God the Father? Well, I think, according to what Paul says, by the Spirit of His Son, we cry, Abba, Father. We cry, we pray. And if you're not much in prayer, though you might be a child of God, if you're not much in intimate communion and prayer with God, you will not feel much of an experience of sonship, though you are in status a son or daughter of God. And how is it we grow? Well, we, we need to learn. We need to learn to spend time. We need to understand we need to stop imposing our view of what we think of ourselves that God thinks the same way about us. Very rarely will God think about you the way you think about yourself. You need your mind renewed because God is such a loving Father and He is waiting for intimacy, closeness with you. Whereas sometimes you want to run away from Him, He's, he's just wanting you to run to Him. And He's adopted you for that reason. I have never talked to parents who've adopted children that have said to me, we love our other children better. Never. Never. Every parent that I talk to that's adopted children love their children just like any other parent whose children are biological parent, children. Everyone. And that's what God says, I'm adopting you into my family through my son Jesus Christ and I'm going to give you all the rights and privileges that I gave my son Jesus. They're on you. 
That's the kind of relationship God the Father wants with you. But you don't take time for Him. You haven't cultivated intimacy. You cannot have intimacy with God without a prayer language in life, without a sense of longing for Him. I said prayer language. I did not mean some kind of a special utterance. I'm just talking about the kind of life with God that is intimate, that goes to Him first with all the problems and the things that are on your heart. I'm going to ask you just for a moment to take a few more minutes with me, and I'm going to ask all board, staff, and deacons to come forward right now. If you would just come forward, all board members if you're present, all staff members if you're present, and all deacons if you're present. Just come and line up on the line here and face the congregation. Would you do that? And as I, as I invite them forward, I just invite them forward simply for the reason of you getting a, a, an eye on who they are. Um, these are people that you, I would ask you to pray for. If you have questions about our church family, I would ask you to come and talk to these people. These are the people that uh, I am so blessed. Wayne said he had the best job. I think I have the best job in Manitoba or Canada. Um, I am so blessed to be able to work with these people. And yesterday and the day before when we were on retreat together, we got into some of the things that I've been talking about, about how we see God. And we shared laughter and tears together on how it is that each of us are grappling to know, to put aside the distorted views of God and to really draw near to the Lord, of, the Lord and our God, God our Father and how much He loves us. And the reason I, I ask you to just take a look at them is because I want you to know these people are seeking, pursuing that kind of relationship with God the Father. And I'm so grateful that I'm part of a church that is also doing that, that also has a leadership that is doing that. So as the worship team comes right now, and I'm going to invite any of you that would like to have prayer, this group at the front is going to be sitting on the front chairs and as we sing the song that is coming, um, I'm going to ask you, how do you act toward God? Do you act toward God more like a slave? Or do you act toward God like a child, assured of the Father's love? Perhaps God has stirred your heart this morning, put his finger on something, and you're not crying out, Abba, Papa, Daddy, to God. You're you're more kind of avoiding him. I want you to come forward. Someone just pray over you. You don't even have to share big detail, nothing at all. Just someone to sort of put their hand on you and say, I'm going to pray for you that the love of God the Father will be upon you and that you'll experience more intimacy with him. Would you stand with us now? And uh, I'll ask the board and deacons and staff to just go to the front row. And anybody that wants to come forward during this song, please come forward right now. Come forward and receive prayer that God's love would be upon you. Amen.